Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Tim Merritt. Today we're going to be looking at Victory Assured. I want to tell you a story about a, uh, a year six group of children. There was about 26 kids in the class and they did all aspects of things that happen at school and one of those aspects of things that happen at school is sport. Who enjoys playing sport? A few people here. Yeah, excellent. I enjoy, enjoy playing sport as well. I actually got to play tennis this week on Wednesday night, which I really enjoyed, and I've missed that. But, um, but these kids also enjoyed playing sport, and out of this class group of about 26 kids, there was about 10 of them that were actually soccer players. They used to play soccer on the weekends. They used to play soccer at school. And they would actually were so good that they would represent their school at soccer. And whenever they got together, they made sure that these kids were separated because we didn't want to get them together. But they liked actually being on a team together. And on one particular day, the, uh, the teacher called in sick and they had to call another teacher in. And this teacher that they'd call in had been part of had come to the school before and as he came to the school this class knew what he did last time for sport and what he would do was he would get the kids lined up in a big long row and he'd go one two one two one two all down the road and he'd say all right number one's over this side and number two's over this side and these young guys knew about this situation and they said hey Let's do something really cool. So when they lined up, they made sure that there was a person in between every single one of these ten guys. And so as the, uh, this new teacher came along, didn't know the ability of these kids, he went one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, all the twos over here and all the ones over here. Guess what we ended up with over here with the number twos? We ended up with this really good soccer team of kids that played together and they were going to play against these guys that didn't play together so much and weren't really familiar and some of them didn't even like soccer. So what we ended up with on this side, we ended up with three kids that actually probably weren't that good at soccer either, but they had... 10 others as a part of their team that were exceptional soccer players. Guess what happened that day? We had a score. What, what happens in, in, in soccer? In soccer you normally don't have a big score, do you? Well, on this particular day when these two teams played, they had a score of 12-0. 12-0. The other guys didn't even get a chance. And even when the teacher realised what was going on, he tried to ref in such a way to help the other team, but it didn't actually help. And I think about those three boys that weren't real soccer players on this side. It didn't matter what they did because of the others around them. Their victory 
didn't depend on them. Their victory depended on the rest of the team. And I want to share a passage with you today that reveals that no matter what happens in our life today, that our victory is assured. So uh, how many people got the memo to read Acts chapter 12? How many people actually read Acts chapter 12? A smaller number. Yeah, that's good. Well, I hope you get a greater benefit than those who didn't do their homework. But, um, yeah, let me tell you, I read this uh, chapter a lot. And this chapter was revealed to me that someone else had done a study on this chapter and they showed me some amazing parables. I think that was you, Isaac, when you, were doing a, you and Missa were doing a study with another group and showed me some amazing parallels between Peter's life and Jesus' life. And I want to ask the question, why are those parallels there today? But chapter 12 begins with Herod. Begins with Herod causing some havoc to the Christian church. Then chapter 12 ends with Herod losing his life. Like I said earlier, we've got some amazing parables between Jesus and Peter. And I believe that this will help us to see some amazing parables between Acts chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And I believe that what we're going to see here in Acts is also a revelation of the playing out of that great controversy afterwards. But the good news is, despite the attacks on God's people, victory is assured. Victory is assured. So let's take a look. I want you to open your Bibles. Have you all got them open? Acts chapter 12. Put up your hand if, you've got, if you're there. Excellent. Acts chapter 12, and I might actually get my uh, glasses. Might need them. <clears throat> Acts chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Here we have this situation that um, Herod was one of those rulers that was put in place by the Romans. He wasn't a Roman himself, but it was his job to keep the peace, to keep um, the peace within the... So his job was to make the Jews happy and the Romans happy. He had to do both. And it was a fine line that he had to walk at times to keep both the Jews happy and the Romans happy. And what it reveals here is that uh, when he killed James, it pleased the Jews. So he actually made the Jews happy and which would have made the Romans happy because there was peace in the region. And so what he did was he seized Peter also. Now when we think about James here, this was one of the three. This was Peter, James and John. 
This was the three that Jesus had chosen to to do an extra work for him. He spent more time with these guys. He was the one, they were the ones that he took up to the Mount of Transfiguration and did other things with just these three. And now one of them is dead and one of them is put in prison and we don't know much in this stage about John. So it's not looking good. And if we read on, we find that in verse 4, so when he had, when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him to the people before the people after Passover. So he was in a situation where he wanted to actually get rid of Peter, but he couldn't do it until after the Passover. And I love verse 5 because verse 5 tells us Peter was therefore kept in prison but constant prayer was offered to God for him by who? The church. Constant prayer. And I love the way it has that word but in there. But constant prayer was had for him. So so it gives us this indication that there's a but And if we think about what's going on here, it tells us in verse 6 that when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. This here is, is, you know, how can you sleep in a situation like that? Tell me that. How many people do do you think, are you a person that would be able to sleep in that situation? What do you think, Dave? If you had a big day, big week at work, do you think you'd be able to sleep chained up between two guards? Ken, do you think you'd be able to sleep? 100%. (laughs) You're a different person to me. I don't know how I could sleep stretched out like that between two guards. But it tells us here that Peter was sleeping between these guards. And then it tells us, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison and struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell from his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. And so he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. Wow. He was in such a deep sleep that what he thought was actually physically happening was actually a vision. He didn't realise what was even going on. Probably didn't know that the church was also praying for him like they were. And verse 11 tells us, And when Peter had come to himself... He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So here we find that the Jewish people are behind what Herod is doing. But Peter knows that he's actually been delivered. I love this next section and I want us to ask ourselves some question about it. But verse 13 tells us, and as Peter got to, like he went to the house of Mary, um, the mother of John, 
whose surname was Mark, and, and, and they found them gathering together. And Peter knocked on the door of the gate, and a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognised Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, It's an angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when the door opened, they saw him. They were, what does the word say? They were? Does that shock you? You're all asleep this morning. Does that shock you? It's ironic, isn't it? What were they doing when Peter knocked on the door? They were praying for what? They were praying for Peter's deliverance and Peter turns up and he's knocking on the gate and they're saying, no, it can't be Peter. How much faith did they have? How much do your prayers depend on faith? Other parts of the Bible seems to reveal that they depend a fair bit on it, don't they? But this passage also reveals that, hey, even if their faith wasn't great enough, the fact that they were praying for his deliverance, God still delivered Peter. God still had a work for Peter. And and, and the very sad thing is that they were astonished. Have you ever experienced that? You prayed for something and then it actually happens and you go, oh, wow. Well, I've got an answer to prayer. Should we be astonished? No. No, we shouldn't be astonished. We should be able to pray with confidence, knowing that God hears and he does answer. And especially if we're praying in the will of God, we can know that we will be heard and we will be answered. The story goes on to share in verse 18. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they each should be put to death and went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and stayed there. Here we have a situation where Herod had heard what had happened. And he searched for Peter and he couldn't find him. Peter had left and gone to a different area. And here, Herod was in a dilemma. The person that he wanted to kill, he can't now kill. So what does he actually do? He kills his own men. He gets rid of his own men. It reveals later on in the story that Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came with one accord and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on the throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. 
What made the people say this kind of thing about Herod? You know, Josephus is a historical writer of events that happened in those times and he talks actually about this very event where Herod was there and Herod had arrayed himself in in this amazing silver-type garment that was reflecting in the light and it was just like he was this glorious being that was in front of them. And he was enjoying the attention, Josephus tells us, and, and, and was absolutely lapping it up and was speaking to the people as if he was a god. What happened next? The Bible tells us, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Now I wonder if this is the same kind of striking as Peter had because... This had a different effect because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. But the word of God grew and multiplied. This is the story. Did you pick out the parallels between Peter and Jesus? Put up your hand if you saw them. How many, did you, how many did you see? How many parallels? Put up some fingers for me. How many parallels? Five? How many saw five? More than five? Not sure. Maybe we should go through them. Okay. Can you see that? Can you read that? Here it tells us that Herod tried to kill Peter. Well, it doesn't actually specifically say he tried to kill him. But this word for sleeping, which we're going to have a look at later on, shows that Peter was nearly to the point of death. But that's what Herod wanted to do. He had already done it to James and he realised it pleased the Jews and now he sees Peter but he can't do anything until after the Passover. Did another Herod try and kill Jesus? Revelation 12 tells us about another Herod that tried to kill Jesus as soon as he was born. Well, actually, Revelation 12 doesn't say Herod tried to do it. Who does he say tried to do it? The dragon, that old serpent, the devil. Mm. But he used his agent Herod to do this work for him. Notice it was at the time of the Passover that Peter was captured and held in prison. Jesus also died at the time of the Passover. Peter was guarded by four squads of soldiers. Now to have four squads of soldiers guarding you, that was generally called a guard. Because in a guard you would have up to 16 soldiers and 16 soldiers would do four shifts in the night. They'll call it the first watch, the second watch, the third watch and the fourth watch which would take you through to morning so they could all get asleep. And so we find that Peter was guarded by four squads, probably four lots of four. We find also that Jesus' tomb was guarded by a guard of soldiers. Now this word for sleeping, and I'm not going to try and say the Greek word there, but the word for sleeping that Peter was sleeping in prison is actually used in Acts on two other occasions other than this one. The first time we see this word for sleeping is when Stephen was stoned and it tells us that he cried out in a loud voice, 
and said, Lord, do not charge this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We know that the Bible talks of death as a sleep. And so the fact that Luke uses the same word for sleep as what he did for Stephen when he died, and later on in Acts 13 and verse 36, he uses this exact same word for David sleeping in the grave. So this indication here is that Peter is actually dead. He wasn't actually dead, but he was facing death, but not quite there yet. Also tells us between two soldiers. Peter was between two soldiers. Jesus was also crucified between two thieves. We notice that Peter was struck in the side by the angel. We also saw that Jesus was speared through the side or struck in the side. Any more parallels? Let's have a look at them. An angel of the Lord appeared to Peter in prison. We find an angel of the Lord also appeared at the tomb when those soldiers fell down like dead men. We find that it was a bright light that shone from the angel and a bright light also shone at Jesus. We find that when Peter arises, who does he go to? Goes to Mary's house. Goes to Mary. Who was one of the first people that saw Jesus? Mary. Peter instructed them, the people at Mary's house, to tell James and the brethren. We find also Jesus instructed, but to tell Peter and the brethren. The guards were examined by Herod and they were killed. The guards were examined who were supposed to look after Jesus, but they were bribed and paid off. Wow. How many similarities are there between this passage and Jesus? I've actually got 12 there. 12 similarities. And there's probably more that I haven't picked up on. That's amazing, isn't it? So what is this really trying to say, this passage? Why these similarities? Is this Luke just trying to say that Peter went through similar things to Jesus? Or is Luke trying to reveal something else? I believe Luke is trying to reveal something else and we didn't really understand until we got the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation we find that uh, in Revelation 12 verses 10 and 11, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night has been cast down. So we find that this is when Jesus won the battle over the devil through all these experiences that he went through. And now Peter is experiencing those And verse 11 says, They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. This is when Jesus won back that dominion that we lost. 
This is when Jesus won back the right to take you and I to heaven to be with him. And these are the things that he experienced. So these are some of the things that we see in Revelation 12. And before I go directly into Revelation 12, and we've studied that earlier in the year, I know, but it starts really in chapter 3 of Genesis. In chapter 3 of Genesis, before chapter 3 of Genesis, we have this perfect world. And then in chapter 3, we find that the devil comes down and deceives Adam and Eve. And in that deception, they lost their dominion and they become sinful beings and they were heading on a path to death. But Jesus comes down or God comes down and he actually has this conversation with them. Adam puts the blame on Eve, Eve puts the blame on the devil and God addresses the devil by saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours and mine. You know, her, the woman's seed and the devil's seed. And we find that when Jesus was on this earth, what was promised back in Genesis 3.15 was actually playing out in this world. He was the seed of the woman. He had come to take up that battle on our behalf. He had come to take up that battle so we could have the victory. And as we go through, we find those similarities. We find it tells us in Revelation 12 that the devil was there ready to attack the woman as soon as it was born. And he did it through who? Herod. Herod was the agent of the devil. Herod was his main man. Herod was who he was using to get rid of Jesus as soon as he was born. And here in Acts chapter 12, we have another Herod killing off God's people. What we find in Revelation 12, that Jesus did win the battle for us over our salvation. But now we find that the devil now turns his attacks from Christ to God's people. Revelation 12.12 tells us, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. He knows that he has a short time. The first thing that happens after Jesus has left, the Christian church starts to begin to grow and flourish and we see those attacks coming upon the church. And here we find another Herod stepping in to do the devil's work. And that's why I want to say to you that this this great controversy theme is actually what is happening in Acts chapter 12. We find that the Christian church was birthed, just like Jesus was birthed. We find that Acts chapter 12, Herod attacks God's people, just as Herod tried to kill Jesus. We find that James is killed, Peter is put in prison, but we find there's a but in there. But prayer was being said. Prayer was being shared for those people. And we find that Peter is risen. And the word for risen is to actually come back to life again like he was dead. But he was risen without facing death. 
and he returns to his people. Herod is furious and actually turns his attacks on his own people just to save face. And then, what's Herod do? He elevates himself to the place of God, exactly what the devil tries to do. The devil has always wanted to be in the place of God and now Herod is exacting praise from the people as if he is a God himself. But I love that last word there. Herod is eaten by worms. Is that significant in the Bible? Isaiah 66 tells us, Isaiah 66 tells us, and verse 22 to 24, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Here at the end of the time it tells us that the worm will not die, and the fire is not quenched. We know the meaning of that is it will not die until everything is consumed. The fire will not go out until everything is absolutely consumed and there's nothing but stubble left. So here it talks about us in in, in the last, as if it is in the last days. Also Mark tells us that if there's an offence against one of these little ones, these little children, what's going to happen? He said, it would be better for for your arm to be cut off or your hand to be cut off than you miss out on the kingdom. Where? What? Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It would be better that your eye be plucked out so you don't miss out on the kingdom. So you don't end up in that place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here this worm, to say that Herod was was eaten by worms is actually saying that he has come to an absolute complete end. Is that good news? Because he is the devil's agent. He is the one that tried to attack Jesus and now he's trying to attack God's people. You know, as we get closer to the end of time, sadly, we will see those attacks increase by the devil. Revelation um, 12 um, and verse 17 tells us, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who's the devil going to want to attack? In the very end of time, he wants to attack us. And he's using all kinds of different agents to do that, to do his work. One thing we need to keep in mind that we sometimes often forget As we go through these attacks personally ourselves, sometimes we forget that we are already on a winning team. Like those three guys who weren't soccer players, they couldn't lose because of the others. 
Jesus has already won the victory for us. And I love that Acts 12 gives us so much more than just what we see on the surface. So as we get closer to the end of time, we're going to see these attacks increasing. And we only have to look around at what happens, is happening in the world today to see that those attacks are increasing. We only have to look at people in our church that are suffering attacks and we go have to know that time is short. What have we got to do to encounter those attacks? I love this passage because this passage reveals what we need to be doing. What does verse 5 tell us? And was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. We need to be praying for each other. When we go through, and I love the fact that this prayer chain happens and, and, and we hear about people that are struggling and we can pray for them. And I love hearing from Myrtle through the week often and saying, this is how God answered this prayer. This is how God answered this prayer. And God is still working. But as we go through these attacks, we need to keep in mind that... It's not because God doesn't love us. It's not because God doesn't care. It's because there is a great controversy going on in this world over our lives. And just as Revelation 12 reveals that the devil can no longer physically hurt God, so he turns his attacks to God's people. He turns his attacks to God's people Because if he gets one of God's people to lose faith, to become depressed, to give up on God, then he actually hurts God. So the only avenue that the devil has to hurt God now is to hurt God's people. Acts 12 reveals that we need constant prayer. We need that constant connection with Jesus. And he will deliver. Acts 12 starts with Herod causing havoc in the church. But in the end, what happens to Herod? He's eaten by worms. He's finished. Yeah. Is that good news? You know, the thing that I want to leave you with today is the devil is a bit like a terrorist. He can't physically, like you know, a terrorist that attacks America. They can't defeat America. Their armoury is so too strong. But they can hurt them. And the devil is like that. He can't physically hurt God, but he can hurt God through attacking us. And when we give up on God, God is hurt because of God's love for every single one of us. So my prayer today is that we will resolve within our own hearts to not let those attacks get us down. And when we see others having those attacks, that we pray for them, we come close to them and help them through it. I want to invite you to stand as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the amazing picture that you've given us in Acts 12. I want to thank you, Lord, and I pray that you will remind us that our victory is assured if we stay connected to you. 
May each one of us resolve to do that today is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. message was made available by the Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church. Me and bought me with his redeeming.
4-1 sang Victory in Jesus. And up next, Reggie and Lady Love Smith will sing Blessed Assurance.
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story has a rather unusual title. I cried when a plant died. And it's about a self-centred prophet. This story is based on the book of Jonah. When I look back at the period of my life I'm about to relate to you, I am filled with regret and just trust and pray that God will forgive me for failing him. My name is Jonah from Gath Hepha in Galilee. My father's name is Amittai. About the time Jeroboam II became king of the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital is Samaria, God told me to give a warning message to the people of Nineveh. This was about 150 years after the death of Solomon. Nineveh was a principal city of the Assyrian Empire and their capital city for part of their time in power. The Ninevites were a warlike and wicked people. Other nations feared them. God's charge both frightened and frustrated me. Why should I give that city a message from God when I thought they were not worth saving? What would happen to me in wandering through that great city? It was about 12 kilometres around its circumference and took days to walk through all its many streets. I decided that the best thing I could do was to put myself so far away from Nineveh that God would have to commission another prophet to do what I thought would be a waste of time. So I headed for the port of Joppa, found a ship that was bound for Tarshish on the southern coast of Spain, a long, long way over the great sea, and paid the fare. I found a bunk in the lower part of the ship and promptly went to sleep. The ship commenced its voyage by first heading in a northerly direction, and then the plan was to head westward. At first, the winds were fair, but soon after our course was set, a violent wind, seemingly coming from all directions, turned the calm sea into a boiling fury. The sailors immediately did everything they could to keep control of the ship. The next thing I knew, I was roughly awoken, with the captain standing over me saying, What are you doing, just lying here while the ship is about to sink? You'd better pray to your God, whoever he might be, so he can save us if he is able. Desperate now, the sailors said, Let us cast lots to see who is the guilty person who has caused this disaster to come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on me. The captain asked me all sorts of questions such as, What do you do? And... What country are you from? When I told them why I had booked passage in the ship, they couldn't believe I was disobeying my God, causing this dreadful storm and putting all their lives in danger. Well, they said, you've caused us all this trouble. Now you better tell us how to save the lives of everyone on board so the ship is not smashed to pieces. Accepting my fate and sensing that I knew what had to be done, I replied, you must throw me into the sea and then it will be calm again. This seemed to them to be a very drastic step to take, 
So they kept rowing on the ship's great oars, but nothing they could do made the situation any better. They prayed to God, asking him not to punish them for the action they were about to take. You, O Lord, have done what you knew was best, they said. Then they picked me up and threw me overboard. At that instant, the waves were calm. Then I felt like I was slithering down a slippery chute into a soft, smelly place. I realised that God in his mercy had prepared a very large fish to swallow me until I came to my senses. O Lord, you have not forsaken me as I ran away from you. Please save me out of the sea, inside the belly of this great fish. The rest of my prayer is at the end of my story. After three days and three nights, God must have spoken to the fish, for it spewed me out onto the beach. At last, I was on dry land again. God had not forgotten the commission he had given me, so he spoke to me again, saying, Get up now and go to the great city of Nineveh and tell the people the message I have given you. This time I did as the Lord commanded and went straight to Nineveh. It was indeed a mighty city, one of the greatest cities of the world in our time. After commencing on the first day's walk through the city, I called out as loudly as I could, In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. To my surprise, the people repented of their wicked ways. Even the king came down from his throne, took off his royal robes, put on a cloak of sackcloth and sat in ashes as a sign of repentance and sorrow for the wickedness of himself and his people. He sent a proclamation to all the citizens of the city that they and their animals were not to eat or drink. They must be clothed in sackcloth and call out loudly in true repentance to the great God of heaven for the wicked things they had done. Perhaps, the king said, God will not do to us what he said he would do and we may be saved. In his kindness and mercy, God accepted the repentance of the king and the people of Nineveh. He saw they were truly sorry for their sins and for the violent lives they had lived in bringing destruction and death to so many of the people they had conquered. So God decided the Ninevites would not die, but would be allowed to live to demonstrate the genuineness of their repentance. Nineveh was built many years before by Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, who lived not many years after the Great Flood. I sadly confess here that I was not happy that God had virtually made a liar out of me, or so I thought at the time. Ah, Lord, this is exactly why I took the ship in the opposite direction to Nineveh, for I just knew you would be kind to them, showing mercy to that wicked people and not punishing them as I had prophesied. I've been made to look a fool, so you might as well kill me right here and now, for it would be better for me to die and not live." The Lord had every right to discipline me for speaking to him like that. But instead he said, Do you really think you have a right to be angry that I have taken the action that I have in not destroying the people of Nineveh? Not knowing what would happen next, I decided to go outside the city, build myself a little shelter on a rise from where I could see what action the Lord would take. 
No sooner had I finished the shelter than a plant started to grow over the shelter with large, thick leaves that made a wonderful shade from the hot sun. I realised that God had made the plant to grow so quickly. I was very grateful for that. By now it was nightfall, and after such an eventful day, I lay down in the shelter and slept soundly until the light of the new day awoke me. To my horror, I saw that something must have eaten the roots of the plant during the night. It had then shriveled up in the extremely hot east wind that blew out of the desert. The blistering sun and oven-hot wind sapped my strength in a very short time. I felt faint, and I thought I was going to die. I said aloud, This heat is going to kill me, so I might as well be dead. I wept at the thought that I might die just because this plant was no longer there to give me shelter. At that moment, God spoke to me, so I listened intently to what he had to say. Do you think you are excused for being angry that this plant died? Yes, I do, Lord. I really do think I have every reason to be angry that my shelter has disappeared. What the Lord said next really brought me up with a start. Your priorities are all wrong. Here is this plant that grew quickly and died just as quickly, and you are unhappy that this mere plant died. Shouldn't I have pity on the hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh who have repented of their sins? I have extended my great mercy to them, so you should be grateful I have also been merciful to you. This experience, this encounter with God, changed my whole attitude. God made me see that people are of far more worth than things, and that when people turn to God and truly repent of their wicked ways, then it is God's right to forgive them in His great mercy and compassion. And that includes me. The following is the prayer that I prayed after the great fish had spewed me out onto the dry land. I prayed urgently to the Lord because of all my terrible troubles, and He heard my humble prayer. Out of the mighty depths I cried, and God heard my plea. He had thrown me into the deep sea, into the midst of the stormy waters. The great sea completely surrounded me, and the waves were far over my head. Then I said, O Lord, I have been banished from your presence, yet even so I will try to look towards your holy temple. The water completely enveloped me, and great strands of seaweed wrapped around my head. I sank lower and lower, even to the foundations of the mountains. I thought the prison bars of the earth had slammed shut behind me forever. Yet you have lifted me up from that dreadful place, O my God, when I was left with no hope at all. It was then that I remembered that only the Lord could help me. So I prayed to the Lord in his holy temple. People who give their allegiance to worthless idols are turning their backs on the loving kindness of God. But I will bring my sacrifices to him as I sing songs of praise. I will pay the vows I have made. Salvation comes only from the Lord. I now have a short quiz for you. What was Jonah's father's name? Did Jonah live in Judah or Galilee? What was the king's name when Jonah was a prophet? Was Nineveh a small town or a large city? 
And how do we know? Did Jonah eventually come to his senses and obey God? What did Jonah still have to learn when God spared Nineveh? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.